Chapter ninety nine of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter ninety nine. The old woman who confronted me in the passage of the inn turned out to be the landlady. On learning that I intended to pass the night at her house, she conducted me into a small room on the right-hand side of the passage, which proved to be the parlour. It was cold and comfortless, for there was no fire in the grate. She told me, however, that one should be lighted, and going out presently returned with a couple of buxom wenches, who I soon found were her daughters. The good lady had little or no English. The girls, however, had plenty, and of a good kind too. They soon lighted a fire, and then the mother inquired if I wished for any supper. "'Certainly,' said I, for I have not eaten anything since I left Llandovery. "'What can I have?' "'We have veal and bacon,' said she. "'That will do,' said I. "'Fry me some veal and bacon, and I shan't complain. "'But pray tell me what prodigious noise is that which I hear on the other side of the passage?' "'It is only the miners and the carters in the kitchen making merry,' said one of the girls. "'Is there a good fire there?' said I. "'Oh, yes,' said the girl. "'We have always a good fire in the kitchen.' "'Well, then,' said I, "'I shall go there till supper is ready, for I am wet to the skin, and this fire casts very little heat.' "'You will find them a rough set in the kitchen,' said the girl. "'I don't care if I do,' said I. "'When people are rough, I am civil.' and I have always found that civility beats roughness in the long run. Then, going out, I crossed the passage and entered the kitchen. It was nearly filled with rough, unkempt fellows, smoking, drinking, whistling, singing, shouting and jabbering, some in a standing, some in a sitting posture. My entrance seemed at once to bring everything to a dead stop. The smokers ceased to smoke. The hand that was conveying the glass or the mug to the mouth was arrested in air. The hurly-burly ceased, and every eye was turned upon me with a strange inquiring stare. Without allowing myself to be disconcerted, I advanced to the fire, spread out my hands before it for a minute, gave two or three deep ahs of comfort, and then turning round said, "'Rather a damp night, gentlemen. Fire cheering to one who has come the whole way from Llandovery, taking a bit of a walk in Wales, to see the scenery and to observe the manners and customs of the inhabitants. Fine country, gentlemen, noble prospects.' hill and dale fine people too open-hearted and generous no wonder descendants of the ancient britons hope i don't intrude other room rather cold and smoking if i do will retire at once don't wish to interrupt any gentlemen in their avocations or deliberations scorn to do anything ungenteel or calculated to give offence hope i know how to behave myself ought to do so learnt grammar at the high school at edinburgh "'Offence! Intrusion!' cried twenty voices. "'God bless your honour! No intrusion and no offence at all. Sit down, sit here. Won't you drink?' "'Please to sit here, sir,' said an old, grimy-looking man, getting up from a seat in the chimney-corner. "'There is no seat for me whilst you are here. It belongs to you. Sit down in it.' And laying hold of me, he compelled me to sit down in a chair of dignity whilst half a dozen hands pushed mugs of beer towards my face. These, however, I declined to partake of, on the very satisfactory ground that I had not taken supper, 
and that it was a bad thing to drink before eating, more especially after coming out of a mist. "'Have you any news to tell of the war, sir?' said a large, tough fellow, who was smoking a pipe. "'The last news that I heard of the war,' said I, "'was that the snow was two feet deep at Sebastopol.' "'I heard three, said the man. "'However, if there be but two, it must be bad work for the poor soldiers. "'I suppose you know that we shall beat the Russians in the end.' "'No, I don't,' said I. "'The Russians are a young nation, and we are an old. "'They are coming on, and we are going off. "'Every dog has its day.' "'That's true,' said the man. "'But I am sorry that you think we shall not beat the Russians, "'for the Russians are a bad set.' "'Can you speak Welsh?' said a darkish man, "'with black, briskly hair and a small inquisitive eye. "'Oh, I know two words in Welsh,' said I. "'Barra a caus.' "'That's bread and cheese.' said the man. Then, turning to a neighbour of his, he said in Welsh, "'He knows nothing of Comraig, only two words. We may say anything we please, he can't understand us. What a long nose he has!' "'Mind he ain't nosing us,' said his neighbour. "'I should be loath to wager that he doesn't understand Welsh, and after all he didn't say that he did not, but got off by saying he understood those two words.' "'No, he doesn't understand Welsh,' said the other. "'No size understands Welsh, and this is a size.' Now, with regard to that piece of job-work which you and I undertook, and forthwith he and the other entered into a disquisition about the job-work, the company soon got into its old train, drinking and smoking and making a most terrific hullabaloo. Nobody took any further notice of me. I sat snug in the chimney-corner, trying to dry my wet things, and as the heat was very great, partially succeeded. In about half an hour one of the girls came to tell me that my supper was ready, whereupon I got up, and said, "'Gentlemen, I thank you for your civility. I am now going to supper. Perhaps before I turn in for the night I may look in upon you again.' Then, without waiting for an answer, I left the kitchen, and went into the other room, where I found a large dish of veal cutlets and fried bacon awaiting me, and also a smoking bowl of potatoes. Ordering a jug of ale, I sat down, and what with hunger and the goodness of the fare, for everything was first-rate, made one of the best suppers I ever made in my life. Supper over, I called for a glass of whisky and water, over which I trifled for about half an hour, and then betook myself again to the kitchen. Almost as soon as I entered, the company, who seemed to be discussing some point and were not making much hurly-burly, became silent, and looked at me in a suspicious and uneasy manner. I advanced towards the fire. The old man who had occupied the seat in the chimney-corner and had resigned it to me, had again taken possession of it. As I drew near to the fire, he looked upon the ground, and seemed by no means disposed to vacate the place of honour. After a few moments, however, he got up and offered me the seat, with slight motion of his hand, and without saying a word. I did not decline it, but sat down, and the old gentleman took a chair near. Universal silence now prevailed. Sullen looks were cast at me, and I saw clearly enough that I was not welcome. Frankness was now my only resource. "'What's the matter, gentlemen?' said I. "'You are silent and don't greet me kindly. Have I given you any cause of offence?' No one uttered a word in reply for nearly a minute, when the old man said slowly and deliberately, "'Why, sir, the long and the short of it is this. We have got it into our heads that you understand every word of our discourse. Now, do you or do you not?' "'Understand every word of your discourse?' said I. I wish I did. I would give five pounds to understand every word of your discourse. 
"'That's a clever attempt to get off, sir,' said the old man. "'But it won't exactly do. "'Tell us whether you know more Welsh than Barra a Caus, "'or, to speak more plainly, whether you understand a good deal of what we say.' "'Well,' said I, "'I do understand more Welsh than Barra a Caus. "'I do understand a considerable part of a Welsh conversation. "'Moreover, I can read Welsh, and have the life of Tom Nant at my fingers' ends.' "'Well, sir,' that is speaking plain and i will tell you plainly that we don't like to have strangers among us who understand our discourse more especially if they be gentlefolks that's strange said i a welshman or foreigner gentle or simple may go into a public-house in england and nobody cares a straw whether he understands the discourse of the company or not that may be the custom in england said the old man but it is not so in wales "'What have you got to conceal?' said I. "'I suppose you are honest men.' "'I hope we are, sir,' said the old man. "'But I must tell you, once for all, "'that we don't like strangers to listen to our discourse.' "'Come,' said I, "'I will not listen to your discourse, "'but you shall listen to mine. "'I have a wonderful deal to say, if I once begin. "'I have been everywhere.' "'Well, sir,' said the old man, "'if you have anything to tell us "'about where you have been and what you have seen,' "'We shall be glad to hear you.' "'Have you ever been to Russia?' shouted a voice, "'that of the large, rough fellow who asked me the question about the Russian war. "'Oh, yes, I have been in Russia,' said I. "'Well, what kind of country is it?' "'Very different from this,' said I, "'which is a little country up in a corner, full of hills and mountains. "'That is an immense country, extending from the Baltic Sea to the confines of China, "'almost as flat as a pancake, there not being a hill to be seen for nearly two thousand miles.' "'A very poor country, isn't it, always covered with ice and snow?' "'Oh, no, it is one of the richest countries in the world, "'producing all kinds of grain, with noble rivers intersecting it, "'and in some parts covered with stately forests. "'In the winter, which is rather long, "'there is a good deal of ice and snow, it is true, "'but in the summer the weather is warmer than here.' "'And are there any towns and cities in Russia, sir, "'as there are in Britain?' said the old man, "'who had resigned his seat in the chimney-corner to me. "'I suppose not, or if there be, nothing equal to Hereford or Bristol, in both of which I have been.' "'Oh, yes,' said I, "'there are plenty of towns and cities. "'The two principal ones are Moscow and St. Petersburg, both of which are capitals. "'Moscow is a fine old city, far up the country, and was the original seat of empire. "'In it there is a wonderful building called the Kremlin, situated on a hill. "'It is partly palace, partly temple, and partly fortress.' In one of its halls are I don't know how many crowns, taken from various kings whom the Russians have conquered. But the most remarkable thing in the Kremlin is a huge bell in a cellar or cave close by one of the churches. It is twelve feet high, and the sound it gives when struck with an iron bar, for there are no clappers to Russian bells, is so loud that the common Russians say it can be heard over the empire. The other city, St. Petersburg, where the court generally reside, is a modern and very fine city, so fine, indeed, that I have no hesitation in saying that neither Bristol nor Hereford is worthy to be named in the same day with it. Many of the streets are miles in length, and straight as an arrow. The Nevsky Prospect, as it is called, a street which runs from the Grand Square, where stands the Emperor's Palace, to the Monastery of St. Alexander Nevsky, is nearly three miles in length, and is full of noble shops and houses. The Neva, a river twice as broad and twice as deep as the Thames, and whose waters are clear as crystal, runs through the town, having on each side of it a superb quay, fenced with granite, 
which affords one of the most delightful walks imaginable. If I had my choice of all the cities of the world to live in, I would choose St. Petersburg. "'And did you ever see the Emperor?' said the rough fellow, whom I have more than once mentioned. "'Did you ever see the Emperor Nicholas?' "'Oh, yes, I have seen him frequently.' "'Well, what kind of man is he? We should like to know.' "'A man of colossal stature, with a fine, noble, but rather stern and severe aspect. I think I now see him with his grey cloak, cocked hat, and white waving plumes, striding down the Nevsky Prospect, and towering by a whole head over other people. "'Bravo! Did you ever see him at the head of his soldiers?' Oh, yes, I have seen the Emperor review forty thousand of his chosen troops in the Champ de Mars, and a famous sight it was. There stood the great, proud man, looking at his warriors as they manoeuvred before him. Two-thirds of them were cavalry, and each horseman was mounted on a beautiful blood-charger of Cossack or English breed, and arrayed in a superb uniform. The blaze, glitter, and glory were too much for my eyes, and I was frequently obliged to turn them away. The scene upon the whole put me in mind of an immense field of tulips of various dyes, for the colours of the dresses, of the banners and the plumes, were as gorgeous and manifold as the hues of those queenly flowers. "'Bravo!' said twenty voices. "'The gentleman speaks like an old Arithir. Have you been in other countries besides Russia?' "'Oh, yes, I have been in Turkey, the people of which are not Christians, but frequently put Christians to shame by their good faith and honour.' I have been in the land of the Mograbins, or Moors, a people who live on a savoury dish called Kuskusu, and have the gloomiest faces and the most ferocious hearts under heaven. I have been in Italy, whose people, though the most clever in the world, are the most unhappy, owing to the tyranny of a being called the Pope, who, when I saw him, appeared to be under the influence of strong drink. I have been in Portugal, the people of which supply the whole world with wine, and drink only water themselves. I have been in Spain, a very fine country, the people of which are never so happy as when paying other folks' reckonings. I have been... But the wind is blowing wildly without, and the rain pelting against the windows. This is a capital night for a ghost story. Shall I tell you a ghost story which I learnt in Spain? Yes, sir, pray do. We all love ghost stories. Do tell us the ghost story of Spain. Thereupon I told the company Lope de Vaga's ghost story which is decidedly the best ghost story in the world. Long and loud was the applause which followed the conclusion of the grand ghost story of the world, in the midst of which I got up, bade the company good-night, and made my exit. Shortly afterwards I desired to be shown to my sleeping apartment. It was a very small room upstairs, in the back part of the house, and I make no doubt was the chamber of the two poor girls, the landlady's daughters, as I saw various articles of female attire lying about. The spirit of knight-errantry within me was not, however, sufficiently strong to prevent me from taking possession of the female dormitory. So, forthwith, divesting myself of every portion of my habiliments, which was steaming like a boiling tea-kettle, I got into bed between the blankets, and in a minute was fast in the arms of Morpheus. End of chapter 99